Southern Skies. Online Media. folks, Happy New Year and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 81 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Our first show for 2012, welcoming you back, I'm Steve Vischer and... No Grant McHeron for this show. We're going to do something completely different. Uh, Grant has been bound, gagged. We've uh, tied him up and thrown him into a balloon, and he's probably hovering above Melbourne somewhere just wondering how to get down. So uh, stepping in to fill the gap is the infrequent flyer himself, Anthony Simmons. Hi, mate. Yeah, day, Steve. How are you, mate? And uh, welcome back to all of the PCDU listeners for 2012. Mate, we're looking forward to a, a very big year here. Uh, 2011, as we said in the last show, was a, a huge year for our show, and uh, we certainly hope that, uh, as we said, our listeners enjoyed coming along for the ride. But we're going to kick this one off with a, uh, a bit of a step back into 2011, and uh, this uh, show actually covers your recent trip to the UK. It certainly does. Uh, in October and November of uh, 2011, I was over in Europe, and when I was in the UK, I was fortunate enough to to go to the final flying display for the year at the uh, Imperial War Museum, Duxford. Duxford's one of the Imperial War Museums. They have a museum dedicated to all of the three arms of the armed services, and they also have another museum located. Uh, it's called the Churchill Rooms, which is Churchill's bunker in London, where he basically ran the Second World War. And uh, it was an absolutely incredible experience, uh, alongside a few other bits and pieces that were done in the UK, courtesy of my brother. But uh, no, very, very interesting. I highly recommend it. And it was very good of you, mate, to hop in an aircraft and uh, head over there on behalf of the show. I suppose you had some some other business to take care of while you were there. But, uh, you know, obviously uh, this is the reach of PCDU now is that uh, we can send people all over the world. Yes, it was. Uh, I was the travelling correspondent that uh, decided that I'd go all the way over to the UK because I couldn't make it to Tamora. Yes, well, we, we're hoping to fix that this year. We might talk about that a little bit after the segment. Now, this show actually uh, takes the form of a, a rather extended view from the land. Uh, well, actually, it's a view from outside the lounge. And uh, if you may remember, Anthony talked about this uh, in the last episode of the show. And uh, it contains three wonderful interviews that Anthony collected uh, during what sounded like a fantastic day weather-wise uh, out there at uh, the Imperial War Museum in Duxford. And uh, they were commemorating uh, flight in the Korean War period in particular. I, I should just point out at the start, though, that this was done on a day where there was a flying display. So please don't mind too much of the audio quality. There is a bit of background aircraft noise, but... I suppose you've got to expect that when you're going to an air show. Absolutely. And see, there you go, folks. I told Anthony this would be addictive and I'd make an audio snob out of him and uh, I will just tick that one off the list. Let's have a listen to these interviews now. It's an iconic theme and instantly recognisable to any member of Generation X, brought up on a diet of popular culture. Of course, its suicide is painless. The theme from both the film and television series MASH, and in almost all cases, are only reference to the Korean War, the so-called Forgotten War. 
Unfortunately, popular culture doesn't always cover every aspect of conflict, and the Korean War is recognised as being the first action in which jet fighter took on jet fighter, the F-86 Sabre against the MiG-15. It was this conflict and the role of the F-86 that was celebrated in the final flying display of the Imperial War Museum Duxford for 2011, and I was fortunate enough to be there. Hi. I'm Anthony Simmons from The View from the Lounge, and this is my audio tour of the Imperial War Museum Duxford, the aircraft and the Forgotten War. As luck would have it, I was in the UK when the Imperial War Museum Duxford put on their final flying display of the year, and it turned out that the previous day I was at Silverstone with my brother for the last session of the British Touring Car Championships. It's only a short drive by Australian standards from Silverstone to Duxford, about an hour and a half, but as I drove towards Cambridgeshire, I was rather curious and I was a little bit concerned about what I would find. When your airshow baptism by fire is Avalon 2011, some unknown airfield in a foreign land seemed to be down market. I will happily state for the record, I was so very, very wrong. Enter roundabout, then take third exit. Well, it's stupid o'clock in the morning. And I'm heading off to the Imperial War Museum, Duxford, for their last flying show for the year. I've just left Silverstone. It feels a little bit strange. It feels like the first day of school I'm going to an air show without Stephen Grant. Hmm. I can almost imagine Steve standing there with the pipe in hand and cardigan saying, I'm proud of your lad. And Grant there in his pinafore and his lace handkerchief sobbing quietly. Anyway, folks, as I say, I've got to enter the roundabout, as the nice lady says, and take the third exit. So uh, I'll leave you be. Catch up with you shortly. Bye-bye. Enter roundabout, then take third exit. After a little bit of geographic embarrassment, primarily to do with a sat-nav and uh, some works on the M643 or whatever it was, I finally made it to the Imperial War Museum, Duxford, and along with a few other professional media people and yours truly, we're about to go and wander the flight line and take a few happy snaps. The Korean War, fought for three years, is remembered by many as being exemplified by the American television series that ran for almost four times longer than the actual conflict itself. Much has been written about previous engagements, and I'm not going to rehash that here. Yet as an early harbinger of the Cold War and a set piece of mid-20th century geopolitical manoeuvring, it's a conflict that seems to be forgotten. But the stories and histories of the people involved are more important now than ever before. With no more survivors of the Great War and the numbers of Second World War veterans rapidly diminishing, it's the remaining pool of Korean War veterans that can provide a tangible insight to younger generations. As a member of one of those younger generations, I was privileged to speak with Don Reed, who served in the Fleet Air Arm during the Korean War. I'm with Lieutenant Don Reed, retired from the yeah. Fleet Air Arm, who's a veteran of the Korean War. And here at the Imperial War Museum, Duxford, their autumn air show is commemorating the Korean War. Don, thank you very much for talking to us and welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. My pleasure. I'm just curious to know, I believe that you were uh, flew one of the last sorties of the Sea Fury. and Sea Fire. Sea Fire, and yeah. then transferred across to the Sea Fury. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that, please. No. No, I'd, I'd never transferred to the Sea Fury. Um, I flew Sea Fire 1517s and then um, uh, Triumph recommissioned. She was on the Med Station and we re equipped with Sea Fire 47s. 
uh, for the second commission. And the second commission also coincided with the ship being transferred out to the Far Eastern fleet. So when the Korean War started, um, Triumph was already on station. So they, they were the sort of first carrier up there. By this time, funnily enough, I had left Triumph having done my tour of duty. Um, so because in actual fact that the people replacing us were breaking the odd couple or whatever, we were down to about 13 left. Oh. So I was flown back to join the ship in uh, uh, Sasebo, which is on the South Island of Japan, and join, rejoin the squadron. So we had a, a nice homecoming. Very good. And were you immediately deployed at the start of the Korean War, or did you have to do uh, the training first? I had to. You know, you're not allowed to go straight on just like, even though we had two and a half years' experience on the deck, you still have to do a refill. So I had the best, I think the best flying of my career was um, obviously there were none in this this country, and the only ones left um, were shore based in Cold Rose in Cornwall. So we went down to Cold Rose and we had the whole of the airfield available to us, which was fantastic. So we used to fly during the day whenever we wanted to fly. And uh, one, of the, one of the three of us had a wife uh, in uh, near Cold Rose. So we used to wander down to watch the old getting tins of crab legs and stuff like this, all for nothing, <laughs> drinking beer or getting ready for the crew. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds the way to uh, go down to Cornwall, spend a time in Cornwall. It was very nice. So how long did you spend in Cornwall before you were redeployed back to the uh, Far East? Oh, I'd only been about... I wasn't actually on Cornwall, in Cornwall at the time. I was at, uh, on, on the carrier, or the carrier, then I left the carrier. And uh, I rejoined the carrier in Japan for the, when the Korean War started. Right. And uh, how many sorties did you fly in the Korean War? How long were you flying in the oh, Korean War? All, not long at all. About something like 30 or something like that. But you didn't do it, yes. Um, I, I, I suppose altogether on 47s I, I did about sort of 300 hours and 500 hours in total on sea fires. And that was about sort of 700 sorties. And that was over what sort of a period of time? Three years. So that was the three years. What happened after the three years at the end of your time in the Korean War? Did you remember the Navy. You left the Navy. Yeah, for, for home problems, which I won't bore you with. No, it that's wasn't fine. our marriage. I had a, I had a, my father, unfortunately, lost both his legs on the First World War and died very, very young. Oh dear, I'm sorry it, to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Well, the, these things happen. And uh, so uh, I saw this thought the time is best to come home to the family uh, and uh, then I got married of course to this gorgeous Wren who now unfortunately no longer with us and uh, had uh, you know my three children produced tw- 12 grandchildren for us so it was worth coming home to yeah. it certainly sounds yeah. like it yeah. did you maintain a passion for flying after you left uh, the fleet era no I, don't, I, try, I try not to look backwards no fair enough no, fair there's, enough. No, there's no fun no but uh, did you enjoy your time whilst you were flying? I loved it. I loved it. And I hate to say it, but in fact, I think I enjoyed my um, observer time almost as much, if not more, than when I sort of changed over to the front seat. And my, I always remember that when you leave the ship, you get a commission from the captain, you know, saying what you've done and all the rest of it. And my last one I got was read on Lieutenant Don Reed is an average pilot observer who has been proving all the time 
Very good football player. They do fly. I like that. Very good football player. Yeah. Well, look, it's been very, very nice to... a lot of Aussies, of course. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, the, player, did... the player that I flew behind with was a Kiwi, New Zealander. Did you have much to do, actually, thinking about that? Did you have much to do with the Australians and the New Zealanders over in Korea? Oh, a lot over here, yeah. Not Korea, no. 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 But over here, yes. Over here, I, my, my pilot, when I passed out as an observer, my pilot was a bloke called Slim Simpson, who was a Kiwi, and a wonderful pilot. I never, ever felt in trouble. Yeah, well... Uh... <laughs> I'm not joking. In those days, half your squadron would be from the Commonwealth. Well, that was part of the nature of the service, I believe. That they did take the, a lot of their pilots from the Dominions, from Australia, from New Zealand and from South Africa. That's right. Yeah, and their only trouble was they, they used to be quite good on the drink. And, you know, and when, they, when we had a party in the mess, what they used to do is terrible, really, and think about it now. They used to go around emptying all the flower vases and filling it up with beers so the bar was open all night. That sounds very Australian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. I can relate to that. I think the Kiwis are even worse. Oh, I couldn't say anything in that regard. They're too close yeah. to us. I've got relations out in, uh, in Australia now. Mm. You know. Well, anyway, Don, thank you very much for speaking to us and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. You've certainly turned the weather on for us. It's absolutely glorious yeah, here in Duxford. Nice for, I said, not nice for flying. A pity the poor bloke was looking in the sun. <laughs> I'll just have to fly in the opposite direction. Just shut your eyes. That's it. (laughs) Thank you very much once again, Don. Okay, then. All the best. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And what a fascinating story he has. An incredible man interviewed in an amazing location. You see, Duxford is not just a museum. It's living history that you can walk under, around and through. I should make mention here about the Duxford Aviation Society. It's a volunteer group that preserves iconic British aircraft and it's not a cordoned off please don't touch display. These are real aircraft in the process of being restored to their former glory that you can walk through. You can see displays of promotion items, crew uniform and other esoteric stuff that conjures up the golden age of flying. A big hat's off to them and the obvious integration that they have with the Imperial War Museum. I think I provided two quid to see not just the picture of the Beatles stepping off a plane at Essendon, but the original menu of what they ate on the BOAC flight to Australia. And that is priceless. Then how do you coordinate this, this great big mess of pottage, the press, the people, the planes. It's not a greatly enviable task, yet Esther Blaine, Duxford's public relations manager, coordinates all of this superbly. I've just been wandering around some of the actual exhibits that you can climb through. In fact, I've just got off one of the test prototypes of the Concorde that uh, made a flight from London to Bangor in the United States in 1974 in two hours and 16 minutes, which is a quite an incredible thing when you think about it. But having had a wander around, I don't think I'm going to be able to do Duxford justice today. It just seems to be too big. It's almost something that you need to come for at least two or three days to be able to fully appreciate all of the exhibits and the actual history that's here. It really is quite, as I've said before, an amazing place. Anyway, hopefully we're going to wander off shortly and we're going to have a chat with Esther Blaine, who's the Public Relations Manager of the Imperial War Museum, Duxford. 
Hi folks, back again. I'm here with Esther Blaine, who's the Public Relations Manager of the Imperial War Museum, Duxford. Esther, thank you very much and welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Look, firstly I must say I've had a bit of a wander around this morning and this is the most amazing facility you have here. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about Duxford and its history. Oh, we're so proud of this site. Um, Duxford was uh, an RAF base back in 1918, built towards the end of the First World War. Um, between the wars it was a training school for pilots and the local Cambridge University Air Squadron flew from here too and then as we came close to the Second World War obviously squadrons came in here to fight for their country. It's most famous as uh, a Battle of Britain airfield so famous British pilots like Douglas Bader flew from here. Yes. Um, it was the first uh, airbase to get Spitfires to fly. Right. Number 19 squadron who were based here pretty much throughout the Second World War uh, were the first squadron to fly Spitfires and there was a, a great press hoo-ha at Duxford when the Spitfire were brought out to the public so we're very synonymous with that particular aircraft and then during the latter part of the war when the Battle of Britain was won um, the site was given over to the air fighting defence unit who would look at um, enemy aircraft and try and pull them apart and see what the technicalities were of them and learn more about those aircraft and, and basically how we could beat the enemy and then towards sort of 43-44 the United States Army Air Force came over to uh, Britain and the fighter squadrons took over Duxford so things like Mustangs were and Thunderbolts were flown from Duxford, accompanying the B-17 flying fortresses that were flown from down the road in Bassingbourne. Um, and then uh, Duxford continued as uh, a fighter base until the late 60s, when it started to become obsolete. It was in the wrong part of the country, wasn't quite as useful for jet aircraft, um, and it closed late 60s. And then had a hiatus of about 10 years before uh, the Imperial War Museum started to take an interest in the site. And really, first he used it first storage of large objects and large aircraft and the museum really grew out of that so an amazing history with so many wonderful personal stories um, and then over the, the decades from there we've developed into the amazing museum you see today which is indeed an amazing museum with obviously a very very rich history and a tapestry of characters and people that went through one of the things I've noticed on your website is that you do a lot of educational programs with young children here I'm wondering if you can just give us a bit of a background into how that started and what you actually do with those educational programs? Well our, our, our formal and informal learning programs are integral to the running of the museum it's really all about educating people in a fun and exciting way and encouraging them to believe that history is something that is live and vital and important to their lives, not just something that's dusty and in the past and to be read in books that um, you know are rather dull and, and boring so it's really about bringing history to life with our formal learning program we're obviously working with schools, colleges, universities um, to try and educate them and, and that'll be everything from you know second world war through to korean war vietnam and more contemporary conflicts and that's about schools coming here and experiencing those particular subject matter here at the museum but also us going out to schools and, and talking to them but we also have a massive informal learning program so every school holiday every half term every weekend there is something here that families can enjoy together and they can learn about history together so we're at the autumn air show today and today we've got in airspace some <coughs> Korean War costumed characters um, talking to the public in the first person about the Korean War up in airspace. We've got um, objects from Bomber Command in the Second World War that people can get hands on and have a look at and see what people would have been using during that time during the Second World War. And we've got an ejector seat, which doesn't actually go, um, but, that <laughs> oh, you, what a pity. but that you can sit in and experience what it would have been like to sit in an ejector seat. So all those things that are really um, physical, tangible, have a go, hold it, it's talk hands -on to me. 
history. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It, rather than being from a text, exactly. it gives you a tan- chance to get up nasty, close and personal with it. Absolutely, and to, to really experience in the first person what that time in history was like and to think, well, what would I have been doing during that time? How would it have been for me? Um, and that, that really is what bringing history to life is all about. Our Department for Learning do some amazing, fantastic, really um, authentic and, um, and innovative programmes of activities that really bring all that to life for families. And, and you get generations of people learning together. You get grandma and granddad, their mum and dad, and then the kids all learning about a series of, of historical events together. And that's, that's very important. Oh, definitely. One of the things I've noticed is that you have right at the one end of the airfield here, you have the new airspace. I believe it is relatively new, the airspace exhibition that has the Concorde and the, uh, I think it's the Hermes and a few others. Obviously, the museum is growing and developing. What are your plans for the, or what are the Imperial War Museum's plans for the future of this site? Well, Ducks would never stand still. We're a historical site. We're always looking to the future. Um, and yes, airspace is the first building that people go into when they come to the museum. It's like an explosion of aircraft and it's every iconic aircraft you can imagine from the dawn of flight with the Wright brothers right through to space travel and everything in between. And in there you can see a Concorde, you can see a Tiger Moth, you can see a Vulcan, you can see a Lancaster, just all these iconic names that just trip off your tongue. Um, coming to the, to, to the fore in the next few years, there's some really big major projects for Duxford, first of which is a thing called Historic Duxford. What we've done at Duxford really over, over the last few years is um, build it up as a museum. So people know Duxford as a, a great day out, a good place to come to learn about history. Oh, it certainly um, is that. I don't think they necessarily know Duxford's own individual history though you know who were the people who served here where did they work what did they do um where did they fly from and they walk around this amazing historic site that is probably the best preserved second world war airfield in europe um and only know it as a museum. There's another layer of history there that they don't know. So we've got an ongoing project that starts with the redevelopment of the old watch office, which we're standing opposite. Um, And that will be an exhibition where we will tell more of the personal stories of the men and women who worked and served at Duxford from 1918 right through to 1960s. And part of that as well, we'll recreate the original watch office that was used by the, the pilot officer watching the flying during the 1930s. And then from there, we develop that over the years throughout the site there'll be a new trail uh, around the site that people can can see uh, where they can find out more about what's where and what people would have done in that area um, we're refreshing the operations room uh, to, to revitalize that interpretation too and, uh, and much more across the site so there's lots of that to come which is really exciting it's the first opportunity for us to really tell the stories of the people who were so integral to Duxford's history and then moving forward from that the American Air Museum that's at the opposite end of the site to airspace is having a refreshment over the next few years too so we're looking at um, how we tell the stories of the aircraft in there and making it more of a a narrative as you walk through the museum Um, and we'll be looking to change that and then who knows moving forward there's always something happening at Duxford always something new and always something different that's the wonderful thing about the future even when you're looking back to the past well I must admit I said before that I just don't think I'm ever going to be able to do Duxford you know justice in one day especially with so many people so I'll definitely have to come back. But I must admit, thank you very much, uh, Esther. It's been an absolutely, so far it's been a fantastic day. You've done a wonderful job. Thank you for your time. I realise as public relations manager, you're under the pump a little bit. It's a little bit manic. But thank you once again for your time and uh, thank you from playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. I certainly shall. Thank you. Bye-bye.
now it comes down to the aircraft. I've wandered through a Vickers V701 Viscount, a de Havilland DH106 Comet, an Aerospatial British Aerospace Concorde 101, and numerous others. However, at Duxford this time, the star of the show was the F-86 Sabre A, a unique and incredible aircraft. The Korean War was the first conflict where jet-powered swept-wing aircraft, the new, were engaged in dogfight action reminiscent of the First and the Second World Wars. This is technology and advanced science moving onwards. It's trampling over the old world. It's the new age screaming from out of the skies, be afraid. Be very afraid. And this symbol of a new age has been restored by the Golden Apple Trust. The gentleman who flies it is Mark Linney, and he has a very interesting story. I'm here with Mark Linney, who's the chief pilot of the Golden Apple Operations F-86 Sabre, and also the author of the recently published North American F-86 Sabre Owner's Workshop Manual. Mark, hi, thank you very much for your time, and welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the F-86 Sabre, it's a unique aircraft, but the one that you fly is particularly unique. I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of its background and history. Okay, well, its uniqueness really is the fact that it's the only A model that still flies, so it's from the original uh, production batch. It's actually the 72nd Sabre that was ever built. Uh, They laid it down in 1948 and it went into service in February 1949 uh, at March Air Force Base. So it really is a very, very early um, example of the type. Uh, And it's the only one in the the world. And we believe it to be the oldest jet-powered aircraft in the world as well. That's airworthy uh, because things like the Meteors and the Vampires and other aircraft like that all tend to be from the late 40s or early 50s, whereas this is a 1948 aeroplane. So it's quite special. And uh, I believe there's a little bit of a story behind how it actually got into the air. Uh, if you're referring to the restoration? Are you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, the, the, it's very unusual for ex-US military aircraft of the time to actually survive intact because it was government policy to put them beyond use and that involved usually chopping the wings off or you know soaring through the spars or whatever um, however this particular aircraft when it finished its life in the air force it was uh, with the canadian air national guard and they donated it to a local technical college principally for the technical college to use it as an instructional airframe and after about 10 or 15 years of doing that it became surplus to requirements, so the Telegram College sold it to a scrap dealer, and it was literally towed across the road and put in a scrapyard. But it had never been put beyond use, and it sat there for 10, 10 more years until it was rediscovered as a potential restoration product because it was virtually the only aircraft that didn't have the wings cut off, etc. So uh, Jim Larson and Ben Hall from Seattle, they, in 1970, bought the aircraft for, I think it was $700 or some trivial amount, uh, with a load of spare parts. And in fact, they bought two airframes. The other airframe was even older than our aircraft, and it was from the very first sort of production batch, if you like. And that aircraft, parts of it still fly today on our aircraft. So uh, it's, you know, it, it, they, they made use of... Uh, uh, spare parts from other airframes as well ultimately and it's ended up you know with um, uh, I think it was about four or five years a lot of blood sweat and tears but eventually after overcoming many difficulties and problems they they got the thing back into the air so yeah it kind of had a a second life really. Uh, Which is a fascinating story in Mm. itself and talking about fascinating stories in itself what about your own personal flying experience? 
Well, I uh, I joined the Air Force, the Royal Air Force, in 1980 when I was a 18-year-old kid. <laughs> so that tells you how old I am now. I'm 49. Uh, I spent 15 years in the Air Force and was very fortunate in that um, I did three flying tours. I did a tour on the Tornado Bomber, GR1. Then I did a tour as a flying instructor on the Hawk. And uh, my last five years, I spent flying the Harrier. And then I left. So I, I had a good variety of flying. I didn't do a desk job or anything. And uh, when I left, uh, I went to the airlines. And uh, since then, I've been flying jumbo jets and A340-600s around the world for, um, for uh, a, a British airline. So I kind of, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've been involved at Duxford flying some of the older aircraft, really, because when I was in the Air Force, uh, I was a display pilot in the Air Force. So I got to know the characters and the people here. So when I left the RAF, I just kind of stayed in touch with people and I got the opportunity to fly various aircraft over the years and I'm still doing it. You mentioned the Harrier before. Was there a little bit of a twinge of sadness with its decommissioning last year? I actually went to the event for the decommissioning in November last year up at RAF Cottesmore and it was it was very emotional I mean a twinge of sadness is a real understatement the, the, the aircraft was um, was very was very much loved it was very capable as well most of the aircraft had just been through a midlife update so in terms of their uh, sort of modernity if you wish they were right up there with the latest avionics and uh, engine modifications and the airframes had all been sort of midlife uh, updated so so the, the aircraft was really a fantastic fleet and it, it gave us a, it, a immense capability uh, especially as within weeks of decommissioning the Harrier Libya kicked off you know mm. and wouldn't it be nice to have an aircraft carrier sat in the Mediterranean off the coast of Libya kind of thing so no it was very sad and I, I, I was there for the event um, I've never seen so many grown men crying you know it was very very emotional because the Harrier was such a special aeroplane and uh, it was its demise early demise was just unnecessary in our view it was somewhat short-sighted you think uh, very short-sighted and you know the the amount of money that we've saved by doing it you know it's a couple of pounds ahead you know what I mean in the big scheme of our of our budgets and our spending it's really a very small amount of money and uh, it's just taken away a capability that nobody else had really well okay the US Marine Corps still have the capability but you know in terms of uh, sort of Western Europe we were the only people that did that if you were to nominate your favourite aircraft that you've ever flown, what would it be? It would be the Harrier, no question about that. It's, um, it's just a, such a different aeroplane. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, we kind of, uh, we, had, we had a saying in the Air Force that most aircraft will come into the circuit and they'll land and then stop. Whereas in the Harrier, we used to come into the circuit and we'd stop and then land. You know, so it was it was it was a great aeroplane from a pilot's point of view because you could stop and fly backwards and turn around and do all kinds of wacky stuff and just land on gravel tracks and take off from anywhere. You know, so uh, we used to take it off the ship and you know, just brilliant. Um, so yeah, I, I would say the Harrier was my most exciting time in terms of flying, um, but really very closely followed by the Sabre if I'm honest you know I mean I think the Sabre is just a, a, just a superb it's, it's, it's a great um, it's a cool looking aeroplane it's, it's, it's an icon of the jet age oh it is that you know I mean it's just everything about it just says it's just a wonderful machine and of course it was uh, the A model in particular is the lightest and the most kind of purest of design of all the Sabres because as the Sabre developed it got heavier it got more power it got 
different flying controls. In many respects, a lot of things were improvements, but nonetheless, you know, there's something sort of pure about the A model, and it just looks right. Very clean, very... Very aesthetic, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the motto of the Golden Apple Trust is uh, our, our kind of tagline, if you like, is machine age heritage brought to life, because the the Sabre really is about the machine age. There's no computers in there, there's, there's nothing electronic in the aeroplane, it's all clockwork, you know, it's all levers and pulleys and... Wires. You know, and, it, and it's really the last of the kind of, you know, because once the Century Series of fighters came in, that all kind of changed, you know. And of course, the, the, the other aspect to it as well is that in 1947, 1948, when the aeroplane was was being developed, our, our knowledge of swept wing aerodynamics and high-speed flight was quite limited. So you've got to hand it to the engineers of the day and, and, and the designers of the day that they managed to put together an aeroplane that was so good, you know, given that it was the first one, really, the first swept wing aeroplane. There was such a fundamental change of the design yeah. protocols and technologies of aircraft at it the was, time. And, and in fact, in fact there, were, there were technologies that they had to invent. Uh, particularly if you look at the wing construction because what they were doing was they had to to achieve the performance they had to have a relatively thin section of wing but the aircraft was capable of 200 knots quicker than anything else in the sky so they had to build it much more to take much more punishment uh, to withstand high temperatures from the jet engine to withstand very high stresses of of high speed flight Um, there were certain uh, stability issues as well that they really had to overcome, you know, from scratch. But from an engineering point of view, the, the construction of the wing, they, they really had to design the technique and the manufacturing method to, to build it because there was no equivalent available. So North American Aviation kind of take the credit for that in a way because they, they kind of not only designed the shape, but they actually designed the engineering behind it as well. Mm. Basically, it's a transition aircraft. It's transition. You know, it is that transition, that start of that transition yeah. from the from the propeller, you know, exactly right. through to what we yeah. see today. And, and and you know, the other thing as well about about the Sabre is, it, I mean, everyone goes, well, it was ahead of its time, and uh, you know, I'm not sure if it was ahead of its time or not. I think it was of its time, uh, but facts such as the first flight of the prototype of the P51 Mustang and the first flight of the XB86, the prototype Sabre, was five years apart. And yet, you know, the, the, the leap in technology, the leap in performance, is just amazing, you know? Uh, and pilots were stepping out of P51s and stepping into F86s. And, you know, they were just discovering, you know, massive performance boost, okay? Um, it used to consume fuel a lot more quickly and its range was a lot shorter, so there's one element of performance that it didn't improve upon. But everything else about it was, um, you know, faster, higher, maneuverability, the, the, the whole lot, you know, it was just right up there. And of course, um, you know, these pilots had stepped out of P 51s with their straight wings and their instant response engines into F 86s with swept wing that nobody understood at the time. Uh, and an engine that was appalling in terms of its responsiveness. And, you know, the accident rate was pretty horrendous at the start. Uh, they used to joke at Nellis, the flying instructors there, to the students that if you ever see the flag at full mast, take a picture, you know, because, the, the, in fact, North American Aviation ended up producing in 51 a special book uh, to give to pilots converting to swept-wing aeroplanes for the first time, which covered in fairly 
high, high detail, but also in a basic way that you can understand, you know, all of the kind of idiosyncrasies and the differences between a swept-wing aeroplane and a straight-wing aeroplane. Um, so, yeah, there were uh, a lot of... It was a steep learning curve for the pilots and a steep learning curve for the engineers and for everybody else. Um, I mean, another interesting fact, I think, is that the F-86E uh, came out very quickly after the A. I think it was about two and a half, three years between the two types. And that really addressed a lot of the lessons they learned with the A in the early days, particularly uh, in regard to its controllability um, in pitch. Because the, the Sabre A model effectively has conventional flying controls. It's got a, um, a, a sort of, well, they're manual for a start. There's no other Sabre that is manual. It's got hydraulic boost, but the ailerons and the elevators are conventional in terms of where they are and what they do. And of course, at transonic speeds, the shock wave would form in front of the elevator, and effectively, you'd, you'd, you'd lose—you wouldn't lose complete pitch authority, but it made the aircraft very unstable in pitch. So, with the E model, they introduced irreversible hydraulic controls, and also they changed the the tailplane, make it much more powerful, and actually make the tailplane move and the elevators follow. So they kind of reversed. The, uh, the, the controllability of it to put it all in front of the shockwave effectively. But lessons like that, they couldn't have known in 1947. Because it had never flown before, they'd they never learned, experienced it. Exactly, but they learned quickly and the E-model came out, as I say, hot on the heels of the A and was a much better aircraft in all respects. Well, when you think about you know the, the uh, timelines for design and uh, prototypes to come out, that's actually an incredible thing when you think about oh, it. Is, two yeah. or three years to go from the yeah. A-series to the E-series. Yeah, I mean, and the, and the F was even closer behind that, you know, because the F addressed the issue about in Korea, uh, they they just needed more power because they were being beaten in the sort of performance stakes by the MiG-15, and the F kind of addressed that. You know, so the the E sorted out some of the controllability problems, and the F put more power into the aeroplane. So by the end of the Korean War, the MiG-15 and the uh, and the F-86F were quite evenly matched in terms of performance. But of course, the F-86 was a much better weapon system, mm. which I think accounts for why the kill ratio was so it's, high. And the even though it was uh, less superior in the air at high altitudes, it certainly was able to perform at low altitudes yeah. far, in far superior. Yes, it was. And it, 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 was, it was better at low altitude. So I, I think the magic number is about 26,000 feet. Below 26,000 feet, the Sabre is the king. Above that, the MiG-15 kind of gets the prize. Um, but notwithstanding any of that, you know, you have to look at the whole picture. It's not just about the airframes. It's about the training regimes. It's about the tactics that we used. And also, the Sabre was a much better guns platform. It was much more stable. Um, it had a much better uh, gun sight, much more sophisticated gun sight, particularly the Fs, the E's and the Fs. Um, and, you know, the, the MiG-15 was kind of flying around in an aeroplane that was really a little bit too short for itself. It used to wag its tail a lot. Um, wasn't very stable in pitch, and in fact it was unstable in some regimes in pitch, particularly um, when you're sort of pulling around the corner. The, the MiG-15 was known to depart and flick because of G overshoot or whatever, where the centre of pressure just moved uncontrollably and, and the aircraft pitched uncontrollably. Um, and it was and it had a gun sight that was kind of World War II standard, you know, and it was just not the not the same. Not gun up sight. to not up to scratch. No. So so really and truly the, the, the kill ratio story is, is always emotive. Um, you know, the the MiG was just an inferior aeroplane at the end of the day and the tactics were inferior and the training was inferior I guess I think it's also a testament though to the um, the actual design you know all of the people that went into the design and uh, construction of the uh, F-86 it was indeed groundbreaking yeah. aircraft it was but, but also you know I mean we, we have to 
acknowledge, I think, that um, history is written by the victor. Yes. And the 10 to 1 kill ratio that is often talked about, I think you have to qualify that a little bit uh, by saying that when UN pilots came up against MiG-15s being flown by World War II veterans from Russia, the kill ratio was almost even. Mm. Okay, so in the early t- early days of the war, when the no one knew it at the time, of course, but when Russian veteran pilots were flying MiGs, the Americans didn't have it all their own way. Towards the end of the war, you know, with better tactics and development of the aircraft, when the MiG-15 was largely flown by Korean farm boys, dare I say it, you know, mm. or even Chinese inexperienced pilots, then, of course, the uh, UN were wiping the floor with them, you know. So you have to kind of qualify that. The other thing as well about the kill ratios is quite often the American side in particular would uh, counter kill as a gun camera kill. So the aircraft wasn't seen, the MiG-15 wasn't seen to crash, but the gun camera film revealed many hits. Well, it's known that, the, I mean, the MiG was a robust little aeroplane and the small caliber machine guns in the F-86, you could, it could soak up a lot of those. And, you know, there's lots of documentary evidence of MiGs sort of making it back to their bases in Manchunia and, uh, you know, being repaired because these small caliber bullets used to pass through them. That couldn't be said for the MiG, you know, one cannon, in, uh, sorry, for the Sabre, one cannon from a MiG through the back of the aeroplane, the tail falls off, you know, different, different <coughs> kettle of fish completely. So you can't necessarily claim a kill on gun camera alone because the aircraft might well have survived. And, and similarly, you know, um, there were known to be engagements where um, Sabres got hit by the MiG and a fuel tank got ruptured and all the fuel poured out the aeroplane and it ran out of fuel on the way home. And that wasn't put down as a combat loss. It was put down as an operational loss, aircraft ran out of fuel. But actually, it ran out of fuel because it had a cannon shell in the middle. <laughs> so you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. There's no question the Sabre had a superior ratio, but I don't quite think it's as black and white right, as a 10 to 1. Hmm. Because, you know, that would, for me, give a, the wrong idea, give a false picture. I think, um, you know, it's only part of the story. Like I said before, tactics, training, experience, they're all part of the picture as and well. It, it, the sum is greater than the whatever it is, the yeah. part of the whole, yeah. way, however the saying and you know, goes. And, and you know, there are actually quite a few, I mean, we had, uh, I'm not sure my numbers now, but it was like nearly 40 aces in Korea from the UN side. Uh, an ace being somebody who shoots down five aircraft. And we had double aces and we had a couple of triple aces as well. And apart from one guy, they were all flying the F-86. But what you don't know is that on the other side of the fence, there were many Russian pilots who also became aces during the Korean War as well, flying Mi-15s. But of course, you know... As you say, history is written by the victors. Exactly, yeah. So, you know... And so how long do you plan to keep on flying? Well, for as long as we have the aeroplane, really. I mean, the aeroplane has got a lot of life in it. You know, there's no... It'll outlive me, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, the aircraft is uh, for sale at the moment, and, um, you know, it may well leave these shores. So we'll just keep operating it for as long as we can. The, the Golden Apple Trust that own the aircraft, they want to keep the machine age alive. That's that's the whole thing. And, and they want our heritage, because it's a, it's a collective heritage. Although it's an American aeroplane, it's all about, you know, us as a as a race of people developing technology and they want to keep that alive so we'll keep running it as long as we can who knows how long that'll be how long's a piece of string exactly yeah anyway Mark well look thank you very much for your time I realise that you are uh, fairly busy here at Duxford yep. but uh, it's been great okay. for you to uh, spare your time and uh, speak to us down here at Plane Crazy Down Under and I uh, hope you uh, still get to fly the Sabre for many years to come thanks Anthony thank, thank you. you very much All right.
All in all, I was blown away by the depth and breadth of what the Imperial War Museum Duxford has to offer, considering I had no idea what I was getting into to start with. I cannot recommend highly enough a visit if you are in the area. I mean, museums are quite often seen as being stuffy and old hat, but Duxford is vibrant, it's alive, and it's engaging. At this point, I must send great thanks to Don Reed and to Mark Linney for their time and their welcoming to a colonial village idiot with stupid questions, and the warmest thanks and gratitude to Esther Blaine, whose spirits and charm under Antipodean pressure never buckled or folded. So thanks, folks. I hope you enjoyed that walk around Duxford. I'm Anthony Simmons, and you'll hear me back in the lounge in 2012. you have the need, the need for speed? Jetride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding top gun. From mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash pcdu or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And welcome back, folks. Anthony, boy, that was a fantastic collection of interviews. And I should point out to our listeners that Anthony produced that segment entirely on his own. So that's another one I'm going to tick off the box, mate. I've also made a, an editing freak out of you. Uh, indeed, indeed. It's Basically, it's a plan to take over Grant's position whilst he's tied up in the bottom of a wicker basket floating over Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Grant's going to think when he hears that description of him as the doting mother watching you go off. But uh, yeah, I, was in, I actually listened to this a couple of days ago when you first uh, sent it to me and that was hilarious, mate. Uh, yes, I can just picture Grant in his little pinafore gingham dress. Yeah, poor old Grant. It's unfortunate Grant couldn't make it for this show. That's just really a uh, function of uh, scheduling, actually. Uh, we were uh, running a little bit short of time. We wanted to get the show out, so we had at least one show out in January, and, and uh, unfortunately, uh, just due to some timing issues, Grant couldn't make it. But uh, I suppose we'll throw him a can of V or Mother or whatever those disgusting energy drinks are that he likes to to, <laughs> to inhale oh, look, for the next show. It- if he, if he had any taste and respect and decency, he'd go for just a good old plain-fashioned cup of tea. Yeah, I've never actually seen Grant um, consume a cup of tea in the three years I've known him. I've never seen him consume anything but those uh, lolly water drinks. <laughs> yeah, poor, poor old Grant. Yeah. Uh, mate, uh, I just wanted to touch there on uh, the first interview that you uh, had there with Don Reed. Now, uh, uh, I believe that Don Reed is uh, in his 90s and was actually in a wheelchair. Uh, yes, he is. As you can imagine, that uh, this was a conflict that was back in the 1950s. So even if you were 20 years of age uh, when it started in 1950, you would have been born in 1930. So most of the veterans are getting on in years. He had a friend of his who was uh, helping him around uh, who I suspect was probably in his 70s. So uh, 
no, very, very interesting man to talk to. And I was fortunate to get the interview with him. He also was interviewed live on air over the PA system at the show. And he has an absolutely fascinating story about his life and his times when he served in Korea. And uh, I just wish we could have uh, touched on a little bit more. Well, I mean, it's interesting too. I mean, obviously, uh, with Britain being so, uh, you know, heavily involved, obviously right there in the middle of World War II. And I, I guess that uh, still these days is at the forefront of most people's minds when they talk about armed conflict of the modern era. But it, it is true that it's it's almost a, a bit of a, well, not completely a forgotten conflict, but certainly doesn't have the sort of prominence in, in people's minds, does it, that, uh, that World War II has? No, you're absolutely right, Steve. I mean, the Second World War was such a major conflict and with such uh, huge numbers of loss of life. Uh, and of course, uh, then you have the next major polarizing, I suppose, conflict, which was the Vietnam War, effectively the first televised war. It was in everybody's living rooms. And henceforth, why I think the Vietnam veterans got such a rough deal when they did come home. But uh, sort of slipped in between there is almost what uh, could effectively be called a United Nations uh, police action, which was the Korean War. And it does have a tendency to fly under the radar, um, no pun intended. But uh, it's something that I think deserves a much greater uh, attention and uh, recognition. And it has a lot of relevance here, even though, of course, you're over there in the UK, and this is a, you know ostensibly a, an Australia-Pacific-focused program, but obviously Australian and Kiwi air crews, uh, as Don mentioned, served over there with UK forces, but uh, of course, obviously, uh, they were also active uh, under their own uh, flags uh, over there in Korea. Uh, in fact, interestingly, I was talking to Owen Zup recently about his father. Uh, well, actually, we were talking about many things, but uh, he was regarded me with some fa- fascinating stories of uh, his father and uh, some of his flying exploits over there uh, in the Korean conflict. And uh, yeah, I certainly hope that we get to chat to Owen about that at uh, some point in the future. But uh, yeah, there's uh, there's some fascinating stories that come out and it does have a lot of relevance for a lot of families in this part of the world. Well, especially considering it is uh, in the Asia Pacific region and uh, there was a fairly large contingent of Australian troops that went over there, both uh, on the ground and also in the Air Force. And the other thing I was curious about, I mean, was there, there many veterans there from that era or veterans in general? general, I guess, uh, in the modern era, in the modern era with uh, some of the current conflicts that we've got going on. Sadly, really, that generates a lot more veterans of, of the, the more current war. So I guess there would be a lot of younger veterans around. But uh, did you notice uh, there on the day that there were a lot of veterans from uh, previous conflicts? Look, it, it's a bit hard to say. There were a few that I could spot um, as I wandered around Duxford. But you have to remember, this is a one day only air show that got 16,000 people through the gates. So you've got a fair number of families. The weather was absolutely glorious. It was a huge turnout. So there may well have been a a decent contingent of veterans, but uh, in the whole mix of things, it was a bit hard to spot them. Well, I tell you what, they certainly have a a great spokesperson in the form of Esther Blaine. I found her positivity and the way she spoke about the the event there and the museum in general just absolutely infectious. Oh, she is a very, very enthusiastic person. She obviously loves her job, certainly loves working out at Duxford and her coordination of the press, the interviews, getting all of the various pilots into the right positions. It was it was quite incredible to see and uh, she certainly was a little bit of an energizer bunny. Now moving on to Mark Linney there, mate. Uh, it's interesting when he talks about the Harriers in particular um, and I actually found it interesting that even though he'd been on tornadoes, he actually rated the Harrier as a more exciting aircraft to fly and talking there about the emotion of, uh, of that fleet, he, d- he really didn't hold back, did he? No, no. It was actually a bit of a coup to be able to speak to Mark. That was a very much an 11th hour thing. I happened to 
be speaking to Esther and I mentioned if it was possible to speak to Mark Linney because I also heard him interviewed over the PA system and normally they don't uh, get many requests for things such as that. Uh, the majority of the press there are actually photographers so it was a little bit of a shock to the system uh, I think to have somebody who actually wanted to do a an audio interview but very, very fortunate and he's obviously had an absolutely fascinating career in the RAF and now of course uh, flying commercially but no, you could actually hear the emotion in his voice when he was talking about the uh, decommissioning of the Harriers and I could well imagine having spoken to a number of other ex-RAF pilots uh, over in the UK that uh, the depth of emotion and feeling that uh, most anybody who flew the Harrier has for that aircraft and the sadness, the the melancholy that uh, occurred when they when, when what is considered to be a fairly short-sighted decision to decommission the aircraft was made. So, no, very fortunate to speak to Mark and uh, I hope I, for the uh, airheads out there, I hope I did actually ask the right questions. Oh, no, there, there was a, a very good interview and I noticed that he might, he even sounded a little pensive at the start there, but uh, once he got into it, uh, he obviously uh, really hit his straps there and uh, was, was quite happy to talk about uh, all these issues. It's interesting when, uh, just talking about the Harriers and, um, you know, like everybody else around the world, I think I'm just shaking my head at the just short-sightedness of the, the British government in retiring that fleet, but uh, that's that's not really a topic for discussion, I guess, today. However, uh, I guess it's interesting to note that um, since you recorded that interview, uh, the fleet of Harriers has been saved. In fact, uh, they've been actually uh, sold to the United States Marine Corps, and the uh, Marine Corps apparently is uh, picking up uh, most, if not all, of that fleet. Uh, now, it'll be interesting to see if they still operate them uh, as the British uh, Harrier spec or whether they'll convert them into their uh, AV-8B spec. Uh, I believe they're slightly different. We need to get Mr. Vanderhoof on to tell us about that, I guess, at some point. Yes, yes. We'll have to uh, get cracking with David, and he can explain all the differences between British and American VTOL aircraft. Now, Anthony, uh, just talking about the uh, the Imperial War Museum there at Duxford in particular, and I know you would have had time to have a bit of a walk around. Folks, in fact, I should mention, if you want to have a look at their wonderful website, you can find that at iwm.org.uk. There's some, some aircraft there, not only uh, from the Commonwealth forces, but uh, I notice actually they've got uh, one of the ones that grabs my attention right on the front page is a picture of a Messerschmitt 109 that's obviously crashed in England and it's there with its bent props and it's been restored. Must have been just a wonderful experience, even if you're not into aviation. I mean, just walking around and soaking up the history and looking at the technology of the time must have been just a wonderful experience. It, it is a fantastic facility. It's not just dedicated purely to military aircraft or military aviation. They have a lot of displays to deal with commercial and general aviation. The, the range of aircraft that they have is, is quite incredible. And as I mentioned, you can go and there are certain, I think there's about eight or nine aircraft which are being gradually uh, restored by the Duxford Aviation Society and they're all set up as they're static but they're being restored to back to the day when they were actually flying. So for instance, when you go to airspace, which was the first building that you see when you enter into Duxford, that's where the Concorde is and this was one of the Concords that they used in the testing and bedding down before the overall introduction of the aircraft and it's been set up as it was as the test prototype. So there's very few seats in the fuselage. It's actually all there with the test equipment. Uh, the walls basically completely bare or cut away. It, it's a fascinating piece of history. And most of the aircraft that you can have a look at are done in a very, very similar fashion. You can see into the cockpit. You can walk basically the full length of the fuselage. And uh, an incredible snapshot of history and of the times of the 50s, of the 
the 60s of the 70s. It's very, very well worth it. And as I said, it only cost, I think it was £2 or I think it's £5 for a family ticket to, to go through and have a look at all of these aircraft. And then that little gold coin donation effectively funds the majority of the restoration process that's done. And uh, just for those of us who uh, who might be heading over to the UK or for our UK listeners in general, I mean, if you were coming from, um, you know, say London, um, I mean, how far is it to drive? I mean, <laughs> you, you said an hour and a half drive from where you were staying there. And I guess, well, I don't know, we make a lot of fun of the English, don't we, saying that an hour and a half drive is probably a long trip. But, uh, you know, is it that far out of London? Uh, it's it's actually, it is a little way out of London. It's actually located in Cambridgeshire. Now, for instance, I drove back from Cambridgeshire to Brighton. Now, Brighton's on the south coast. So effectively, I skirted London on my drive home. And that took me about, I think it was two hours, just over two hours. So if you were leaving from London, depending on what the traffic is like, uh, you'd probably be able to do it in once again, about an hour and a half, I'd imagine. Okay, and I tell you what, these wonderful series of interviews that you've done here in the show actually dovetails well into uh, Peter Johnson's uh, upcoming uh, From Up Here to Down There segment where he's actually spoken to uh, an organisation there in the UK that's restoring uh, some Spitfires and uh, that will be coming up uh, probably in our next show, if not the one after. So uh, actually, uh, it's actually started off a wonderful theme here, Anthony. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad that I was able to do something constructive and uh, wander out from the village idiot cap for a little while. But uh, there's also a number of Spitfires at Duxford, which is uh, one again, well worth the visit. Absolutely, mate. Now, um, speaking of the View from the Lounge, we've got uh, quite a number of activities coming up from the View from the Lounge uh, segment uh, for 2012. We won't talk too much about it. I know, I know, however, that you flew back with a certain Middle East-based carrier, and I believe that's generated uh, at least one segment for upcoming shows. Uh, it certainly has, and uh, there's a few other bits and pieces, irons in the fire, so to speak, where I'm going to try and see if I can vary it up a little bit. But apart from that, you'll just have to wait and see. Well, mate, uh, once again, we really want to uh, thank you for uh, doing that fantastic job. I know you've put a huge effort into getting that edited and re-edited and uh, uh, experienced the highs and lows of uh, editing audio that's been collected (laughs) in the field. But uh, a magnificent job, mate. That's a really great piece of work that you've done there for us. Oh, not a problem, Stephen. Hopefully I'll be able to do something similar uh, for 2012. (laughs) Folks, if you want to uh, get in contact with Anthony, he uh, frequents the forum quite often there on our downwind.com.au forum. You can always uh, drop in there and uh, leave a comment in the thread there that says uh, the view from the lounge. Uh, If you want to send Anthony an email too just drop us an email here playing crazy down under at gmail.com and uh, maybe just put in the subject line there uh, you know the view from the lounge or something like that so that we can pass it on to Anthony if you've got uh, suggestions for uh, things you might like him to uh, have a look at this year yes please do and uh, remember all donations are gratefully accepted <laughs> there you go. Beaujolais was it mate? Uh, something along those lines yeah, yes yeah absolutely <laughs> well that's everything we have for you on this first episode of playing crazy down under for uh, 2012 we certainly hope you enjoyed it I certainly uh, enjoyed putting it together. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, but until then, hit it, Virtual Grant. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.